So I want to give credit to some of my resources because um, I'm not a Bible scholar. Well, I read a lot of scripture or read a lot of commentary. But a lot of the things that I teach, I get from certain resources. Um, this week, is it, my resources are Art Scroll, Kamash, Humash, FFOZ, Daniel Lancaster's Torah Club 5, Depths of Torah, Tim Hegg's Torah Resource Commentaries, Rabbi Jeffrey Enoch Feinberg, Enoch Feinberg, a Messianic Jewish Devotional Commentary, and of course, when you study Torah, you um, get a lot of depth from the rabbis. So a lot of this comes from Rashi, Rambam, and Or Hakim in their commentaries on the Torah. There are eight weeks, or eight sections, in a Torah portion each week. And the complete Jewish Bible does a good job of dividing up those eight Torah portions, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, or the eight sections of a Torah portion. They represent what the seven readers in the synagogue would have read during um, a service, because... Uh, until recent times, the entire Torah portion would be read during a Saturday synagogue service by seven readers. Uh, this week is broken down into these sections by Rabbi Feinberg. These, the generations, Yitzchak digs in, talking about the wells, blessed but envied, leave well enough alone, Beersheba, the well of seven, the stolen blessing, one son marries, and one son assimilates. This is a pretty neat poem from Rabbi Feinberg. Toldot, toldot, have a son, Yitzchak, Yitzchak, the only one. Pick Esau or Yaakov, twins for fun. God chose Yaakov as the toldot son. Esau wanted to have the blessing, but Yaakov stole it instead. Esau said, I'll kill him dead. So Yaakov upped and fled. That kind of sums up a lot of the, the, uh, the Torah portion this week. The Torah devotes several entire Torah portions to the lives of Abraham and Jacob. In contrast, only this week's Torah portion focuses on Isaac. Even in this Parsha, there's only one story which involves Isaac and no other forefather. That is the story of his time in Gerar, the land of the Philistines. Isaac is forced by a famine to move to Gerar, where he says that his wife Rebekah is his sister, like his father had done many years earlier. Then the Torah goes to considerable lengths describing how the Philistines sealed wells that Abraham had dug and how Isaac redug them. He endures considerable hostility from the native Philistines and finally makes a treaty with their king of Imalak. The most striking aspect of Isaac's actions is that, the, is that they very closely resemble those of his father. Isaac did not want to veer one inch from the path trodden by his father. Todot Yisak is Isaac's life story, and his story will mirror his father's. Like Abraham, Isaac will face problems of famine, problems over a beautiful but barren wife, problems over wells, problems over prosperity, 
And like Abraham before him, Isaac will pass on God's covenant to the next generation. Speaking of generations, there's some good pictures of generations, which is the name what Toldot means is generations. Abraham was a trailblazer. He set precedents and established guideposts. Isaac's job was to consolidate everything that his father had done to follow precisely in his father's footsteps and thereby establish for all future generations the primacy of the Mazora, which means tradition. Isaac's life work was not to seek new ways and new paths, but to follow faithfully on the path trodden by his father. However, there is a key aspect to Isaac that seems to contradict the idea that he followed his father in every way. The two men had very different personalities. Abraham epitomized the trait of chesed, overflowing with kindness to everyone. Isaac, in contrast, was characterized by self-discipline and internal strength. Abraham was the greatest role model a person could have, and it would have been natural for Isaac to try to emulate his father's every action. However, Isaac did not content himself with that. He forged his own path in the service of God. Every messianic believer, every Jew, is born into a line of tradition that goes back to Abraham. We are obliged to faithfully adhere to the instructions and attitudes that we receive from this line of tradition. A person cannot make up his own set of values. There is a tradition that guides him how to live his life. At the same time, this does not mean that each person in the chain of tradition is identical in every way. There are many ways in which a person can express himself. The Kofetz Kaim asked, why the Torah emphasizes that the tree of life was in the middle of Gan Eden? He answers that this teaches us that there is one central point of truth, but there are numerous points surrounding it, each one standing at an equal distance from the center. So too there are many approaches to Judaism that em emphasize different forms of service and different character traits. However, as long as they remain within the boundaries of the Masorah, the tradition, they are all equally valid. The idea that there are many different valid ways for an observant Jew slash messianic believer to express himself is relevant to many areas of our lives. One is the development of one's own personality. All of us have our own individual personalities and no one can be like us. There is a tendency in many societies for certain character traits to gain more praise than others. For example, being outgoing and confident is often seen as very positive, while being shy and retiring is often viewed in a negative light. An, ext an extroverted parent who has a more introverted child may be inclined to see his child's quiet nature as a character flaw and try to pressure him or her to change their ways. However, the likelihood is they will only succeed in making them feel inadequate. It is a parent's job to accept that his child may be different from him, accept him for who he is, and work with his strengths. We too may experience feelings of inadequacy in some areas of our lives because we don't fit in with the consensus of society that we live in. However, we will find more satisfaction in our lives if we allow ourselves to express our strengths and not feel inadequate because of our weaknesses. 
While it is certainly advisable to work on your weaknesses, one should always play to their, to their strengths. There was one yeshiva in particular that stressed the idea that each person should not be forced into one specific mold. Slobka. The altar of Slobka, Rabbi Nosan Z. Finkel, placed great stress on the uniqueness of each individual. He was very wary of employing high charismatic teachers in his yeshiva for fear that they would overwhelm their students with their sheer force of personality. The emphasis on encouraging a student to develop his individuality permeated the teachings of Slovakia students. Rabbi Yaakov Kamensky always emphasized the importance of a student's devotion to his teacher. He stressed that this should not prevent the student from developing independently his own powers of analysis and reaching his own conclusions. That is actually from Aish. I didn't give them credit. Toldot. English translators of the Bible offer a variety of translations for the Hebrew word toldot. Most versions prefer generations or descendants. Others suggest genealogies, offspring, births, histories, stories, or accounts. The English language, as with so many Hebrew words, do not have a word that accurately conveys the full sense of the word toldot. The famous archaeologist and scholar Ronald D. Vox said, the whole so social organization of the desert is summed up in a genealogy. He had in mind the biblical notion of toldot. The word is rooted in the Hebrew yalad, which means beget. A yalad is a child. The biblical toldot preserved the records who, of who begot whom. In that sense, they can be compared to a family tree that charts out the relationships between family members. There are more than just genealogies. They are more than just genealogies. The biblical toldot also contain annotations, narratives, and stories about the characters in the genealogy. Not just a list of names. It's, it's people. It's, it's, it's giving them life. They form the skeletal structure of which all the narratives of the Bible hang. There are several um, Tanakh verses that, um, that have the word toldot even outside of our Torah portion today. Genesis 2.4 says, This is the toldot of heavens and earth when they were created. Genesis 5.1 says, This is the book of the toldot of Adam. And of course we have the toldot of Noah, the toldot of Shem, the toldot of Torah, the toldot of Ishmael and Abraham, and so on. The stories of the characters are described in the genealogy. The stories of the characters that are described in the genealogy are an important part of the toldot. A person's toldot dictated his ethnic, ethnic and tribe is his ethnic and tribal identity, determined his status and class, and defined his religious and social affiliations. The legends and antidotes, antidotes related by the toldot formed a person's collective community consciousness as, an, as a large extended family. For example, the Bible refers to the nation of Israel as the sons of Israel, B'nai Israel, and the house of Israel. The nation divides into tribes based on common ancestors through a patriarch. 
Each tribe divides into clans, and several families constitute each clan. Every person in the tribe has a place and a purpose. They found their identity in the family as a son or daughter in a long line of sons and daughters. Jewish people, for the most part, know their family trees. We go to Ancestry.com and um, well, there's others too to try to find about, out about our families. Jewish people, for the most part, have this in their, their DNA. They, they want to go all the way back to the tribe and know where they came from, where their root, roots are. And these are the offspring of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian, from Padan Aram, sister of Laban, the Armenian. Aramin, as a wife for himself. Isaac entreated Hashem opposite his wife because she was barren. Hashem allowed himself to be entreated by him and his wife Rebekah conceived. Genesis 25, 19-21. The sages believe that it was important to state that Abraham begot Isaac to remove any doubt that Abimelech was the father of Isaac. Legend has it that the cynics of that generation had been saying that Sarah became pregnant by Abimelech. The thought was, with Abra it was that Abraham was unable to conceive with Sarah. This statement in the Torah made clear that Abraham was, was the father of Isaac. It is said that Isaac looked almost exactly like Abraham, which also proved that Abraham was his father. Many of the stories of Abraham and Sarah seem to replay in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah. For 20 years, Rebekah and Isaac tried to have a child that, that could carry on the Abrahamic legacy. All that time, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. One legend says that at the end of 20 years, Isaac brought, brought Rebekah to Mount Moriah, and he prayed for her there at the future site of Jerusalem and the Holy Temple. The sages note that the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebekah, and Rachel were barren. The commentators explain that their experiences prove that the emergence of Israel was a miracle. For each new generation is a gift of God to a mother who could not have given birth naturally. Their experience is, demon, is, demon, is a demonstration of the dictum that God desires for the prayers of the righteous whose pleas for the heavenly mercy and whose pleas for heavenly mercy and attempts at self-improvement show how human beings can raise themselves to spiritual heights. Remember that Yeshua was not born of a barren woman, but nevertheless was a miraculous birth. Isaac prayed and the Lord answered him. Rebekah conceived twins. The children agitated within her, and she said, If so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of Hashem. Genesis 25:22. Where did she go to inquire of Hashem? FFOZ Torah Club 5 says, In desperation and without her husband Isaac with her, she returned to Mount Moriah to seek out the Lord again. And Hashem said to her, 
Two nations are in your womb. Two regimes from the inside shall be separated. They might, they might, that they might shall pass from one regime to the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. Genesis 25:23. The turmoil within her due to this irreconcilable conflict between two nations was already taking shape. The sages teach that the two of them will never be mighty simultaneously. When one falls, the other will rise. History has demonstrated this prophecy in practice. Two regimes, one espousing morality and justice, and the other standing for license and barbarity, cannot, ex cannot coexist. They must always be in conflict until one comes to dominate the other, whether th through victory on the battlefield or in the conquest of man's minds. Interestingly, in the text, Rebecca received a prophecy about the children in her womb, and Isaac did not. Only Rebecca heard the prophecy, and she did not share it with her husband. Isaac's ignorance of Rebecca's prophecy is a crucial piece of the otherwise baffling story of Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 25, 23, Hello? Okay. In Genesis 25:23, the word for nations is goim. Appears as geim, meaning proud ones. Jacob and Esau represent two opposite spiritual forces. Jacob rep represents the kingdom of heaven, and es Esau represents the kingdom of this world. Rebecca's prophecy consists of two couplets set in tight Hebrew parallelism. The prophecy indicates that she carried the patriarchs of two great nations, Jacob, the father of Israel, and Esau, the father of Edom. The nation of Israel, the younger, will prevail over Edom, the older. The story of Jacob and Esau and the history of Israel and Edom illustrate how the deeds of the father are portraits for the sons. Rebekah's sons wrestled from before birth and they have wrestled all through history. In the present day, Edom can be equated with, Muslim, with the Muslim world and even with Christianity. It is interesting and important to note that when the, when the church inherited the Roman Empire, she also inherited the rabbinic association with Edom. While the animosity between Jacob and Esau have been equated with the animosity between Jews and Muslims, it's also true that the animosity between the brothers symbolizes the acrimonious relationship between Jews and Christians. The symbolism seems strangely appropriate. Like Jacob and Esau, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all emerge from the same womb. They should all be brothers, but instead, throughout history, they've been bitter enemies. Paul uses the Jacob and Esau story to illustrate a point about God's choice of individuals. In Paul's day, Pharisaic Judaism assumed that the Jewish people inherited salvation by virtue of being Jewish. Paul's claim that Jewish believers could be partakers in God's salvation without undergoing a conversion to become Jewish challenged that assumption. He objected to the idea 
of an inherited salvation independent of a person's faith in God. The thrust of Paul's teachings in Romans 9 overturns the idea of ethnic inherited salvation by demonstrating that God calls and chooses individuals. This is very important to understand. The purpose of the Jewish people is to reveal God and his Torah, his teachings, to the world. It is through the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that salvation will come. Yeshua came to the world as a part of that lineage. Just as acceptance of Yeshua is a personal choice, so was and is, is a life of faith in Judaism a personal choice. One who did not follow the ways of Torah and obey the commandments of God and instead rejected the Lord and they forfeited the blessings of God. To believe that just because you were a natural born member of the family that you were granted salvation was and is a mistake. So as a member of the genealogy of the family of God by either natural birth or adoption you have a responsibility to follow the rules of the family i.e. the Torah of God. While following the Torah by itself will not bring you salvation that can only be achieved through Messiah Yeshua. It is only common sense to me that accepting Hashem and his son Mashiach but not learning and following their instructions can only be compared to the rocky soil in the parable in Matthew of the sower. And this is the parable. And he spoke many things to them in parables saying behold the sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and devoured them. And others fell upon the rocky places, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, because they had no root. They withered away, and others fell upon the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. And others fell upon the good ground, and yielded fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Matthew 13, 3-9. So let's explain this parable. The seed is God's word. It's, it's the message of the kingdom. The path is the person who cannot understand the message. The birds that come and eat the word are Hasatan or Satan. The rocky soil is the person who begins to repent but gives up quickly under pressure. The weedy soil is the person who begins to repent but becomes distracted by the business of life and materialism. The good soil is the person who obeys, repents, and submits to the kingdom with perseverance. The abundant crop is good deeds, acts of righteousness, and following of the commandments. Meaning, only those who obey the message of the kingdom of heaven and persevere in it will endure to produce fruit in the kingdom of heaven. There are four types of people represented in this parable. The first type of person does not receive the message at all. His heart is hardened like the packed soul of the path, does not heed the warning or call for repentance. Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown. The second type of person understands the message and immediately receives it with enthusiasm. He's initially eager, but has no depth or loyalty or fidelity. 
Such a person's resolve to repent and pursue the kingdom, but they have no firm root and are only temporary. They fall away from the kingdom. The third type of person receives the message of the kingdom and responds appropriately, but fails to prioritize the kingdom. He intends to lead a life of seeking the kingdom, but he soon is distracted by materialism. He forgets about the message as he busies himself with the pursuit of life's needful things. The worries and riches and pleasures of this life distract him and choke his resolve so that he can bring no fruit or spiritual maturity. The fourth person understands the message, obeys it, hears it, and obeys the word in an honest and good heart and holds it fast and bears fruit with perseverance. The lads grew up, and Esau became one who knows trapping, a man of the field. But Jacob was a wholesome man, abiding in tents. Isaac loved Esau for, game, for the game in his mouth, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Genesis 25, 27-28. This present age that we live in today praises the heroic sportsman and the athlete, or the movie star or whatever it may be. We celebrate hunters, conquerors, and victors. We cheer for men like Nimrod and hardly notice the Abrahams among us. We worship the Esau's and ignore the Jacob's. But the blessing of God will rest on the Jacob's who find their delight among the tents and with the family. Jacob simmered the stew and Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted Esau said to Jacob, Pour into me now some of that very red stuff, for I am exhausted. Exhausted. He therefore called his name Edom. Jacob said, Sell as this day your birthright to me. And Esau said, Look, I am going to die. So of what use to me is a birthright? Jacob said, Swear to me as this day. He swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank, got up and left. Thus Esau spurned the birthright. Genesis 25, 29-33 Which of those pictures do you think is more accurate? I think it's the one in the top right, because I think they were teenagers they weren't grown men when this actually took place one often hears Jacob criticized for cheating Esau out of his birthright but careful examination of the story reveals no trickery this sums up the transaction Esau was neither duped nor defrauded he sold the birthright because he held it in contempt it had no value to him tradition says that when Abraham passed away Jacob prepared the customary mourner's broth for his father Isaac. He cooked the soup from red lentils. If the soup transaction took place at the time of Abraham's death, Jacob and Esau must have been about 15 years old when Esau sold his birthright. The Torah uses the soup story as a second etiological explanation for the name Edom. Red, red stuff is Hadom, Hadom, Hazeh. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob calmly and deliberately replied to his desperate brother in clear legal terms. 
Sell me as of this day, from this day on, your birthright. Genesis 25:31. He concealed no hidden terms, no fine print, and no deceitful bait and switch. He made a straightforward and honest offer. Esau should have refused. He should have been insulted that Jacob would suggest such a sacrilege. Jacob asked him to forfeit everything that Abraham and Isaac had cherished, the entire covenant, the land of Canaan, the blessings and the promises, the future destiny of the nation, and all this for the price of a bowl of soup. Instead of refusing the offer, Esau briefly considered it and accepted the terms. He let his appetite dictate his will. His desire for red, red stuff at the moment outweighed the value of being Isaac's firstborn. Whenever we allow our appetites to rule us, we follow in the footsteps of Esau. A disciple of Yeshua should not let his desire for red, red stuff dictate his decisions. Opportunities to honor or despise his birthright in the kingdom pass before him or her on a daily basis. We are constantly placed in positions where we must decide between what we crave and what is right. A man controlled by his appetites is a godless man. All forms of materialism and greed fall into the same category. Some people desire power, control, and prestige. Others find that physical and substance abuse dictate their decisions in life. These are all signs of Esau. A famine came over the land. Not the same as the first famine which had taken place when Abraham was alive. Yitzhak went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistine. Adonai appeared to him and said, Don't go down into Egypt, but live where I tell you. Stay in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, because I will give all these lands to you and to your descendants. I will fulfill the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants as numerous as the sky, as the stars in the sky. I will give all these lands to your descendants, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth will bless themselves. All this is because Abraham heeded what I said and did, not, and did what I told him to do. He followed my mitzvot, my regulation, and my teachings. There are many things going on in this passage. In repetition of Abraham's experience, Isaac was forced or was faced with a famine that forced him to leave his home. In, in verse 2, in which God commanded him not to go to Egypt, but to remain in the land, may have implied that Isaac was planning on going there, just as his father had done. Isaac was the only patriarch that never left the land. It was God's will that Isaac never leave the land. Isaac could not leave the land of Canaan, because Abraham had offered him as a sacrifice in the Akedah. The Torah provid, per, forbids making a sacrifice outside the land of Israel. The Torah also provides taking a sacrifice once consecrated by the altar outside the sanctuary. Isaac's life after the Akedah was of a different order than any other. He was a living sacrifice, sanctified and spiritual. For that reason, he was forbidden from leaving the Holy Land. In verse 4, Hashem restates the covenant he made with Abraham. 
This shows that God passed the covenant on to Isaac and eventually would do the same with Jacob. The repetition of Abraham's stories in Isaac's life confirms Isaac as the rightful heir of Abraham. In verse 5, it says, All this because Abraham heeded what I said and did what I told him to do. He followed my mitzvah, my regulations, and my teachings. In the Humash, it, it, it ends with this. My safeguards, my commandments, my decrees, and my Torahs. In other versions, it says, My charges, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The Lord said that he would bestow blessings and promises on Isaac and his seed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charges, commandments, statutes, and teachings. Teachings meaning Torah. This statement contradicts the idea that the Abrahamic covenant was, of, of, was one of unconditional grace. On the contrary, Abraham's obedience to God's laws and directives earned the Lord's favor. Isaac inherited the Abrahamic blessings because Abraham had merited God's favor. This is in keeping with what the Apostle Paul teaches when he says, Is the Torah then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Galatians 3.21 James, the brother of Yeshua, shows that life of faith results in obedience to God's laws. Keeping God's commandments is an important part of practicing the faith of Abraham. Traditional Jewish interpretation took this passage to mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kept the whole Torah, despite the fact that the Torah had not yet been given, and despite the fact that they were sons of Noah, i.e., they were Gentiles. Messianic Gentiles should understand this to mean that there is only one Torah for both Jew and Gentile, and as children of Abraham, we should all keep that Torah. Yitzchak planted crops in that land and reaped that year a hundred times as much as he had sowed. Adonai had blessed him. The man became rich and prospered more and more until he became very wealthy indeed. He had flocks, cattle, and a large household, and the Philistine envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up and filled with dirt all the wells his, of his father's servants had dug during the lifetime of Abraham his father. Avimelech said to Yitzchak, You must go away from me because you have become much more powerful than we are. So Yitzchak left, set up camp in Vadi Gerar, and lived there. Yitzchak reopened the wells which had been dug during the time of Abraham his father, the ones that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died and called them by the names his father had used for them. Genesis 26, 12 through 18. Under the sovereignty of the Philistine king, Isaac temporarily forsook the drought parched Negev and settled near Gerar. Gerar is, um, let me do a different slide here. You can see that it's right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Let me give you a bigger picture. This, 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 is a, this is a map that all of the patriarchs traveled. It, it's uh, got the journeys of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you can see where the Mediterranean is, and you can see where the Gerar is, where the city of Gerar is, down by Hebron. That's, that's, where, that's where this is. 
He planted crops there, and he reaped, they reaped a hundredfold. In a year of drought and famine, this was a miracle. The Lord blessed him abundantly, but the land was not his. He depended on the good graces of his Philistine host. The Philistines watched Isaac's large flocks grazing on their vegetation and drinking their water, and they saw his fields thriving. They watched Isaac grow richer and richer from their land and their water. Philistine animosity grew to the point where they could cut off his water supplies, where they decided to cut off his water supplies. A generation later, Isaac's son Jacob experienced the same problem as Laban and his sons watched his flocks grow under the blessing of the Lord. Throughout Jewish history, the same thing has happened too frequently. Successful and prosperous Jewish communities seem to invite persecution from the nations hosting them. Abraham's wells. There we go. Isaac returned to his semi-nomadic life and brought his flocks into the valley of Gerar on the edge of the Negev. As he went, he reopened the wells of his father Abraham. The Philistines had filled in Abraham's wells as an exercise in, of sovereignty, perhaps to discourage semi-nomadic shepherds and herdsmen like Isaac from grazing on their territory. Isaac reopened the wells. The Torah uses four short etiologies to describe how Isaac named the four wells. He named one well contention because after he dug it, the herd, herdsmen of Gerar came out and contended with his shepherds. They said, the water is ours. He dug a second well and named it hostility because of a dispute with the same herdsmen. He moved on further into the Negev, away from Gerar, and dug a third well. He named it Broad Places because he had finally escaped the Philistines and had ample space. It seems as if, as if Isaac named the wells without any thought as to what they had been called in his father's day, but the Torah says he gave them the same names which his father had given them. This becomes clear in the story about the well of Sheba, Beersheba. He camped at Beersheba, which is well of oath, and he swore a covenantal oath, Shivuah, with the Philistine king. That same day his servants reported a well they had dug. He named it Beersheba, well of the oath, the same name Abraham had given it a generation earlier when he made a treaty with the previous Amimelech and Pekol. Isaac's four wells. These are the Hebrew words. Isek, contention. Sitna, hostility. You'll recognize this word. Rehoboth, broad places. Sheba, his oath. The story of Isaac reopening Abraham's wells indicates once again that Isaac is the legitimate heir to the Abrahamic legacy. Like Abraham, Isaac sojourned as a stranger in a strange land without land and water rights. On another level, the story illustrates the value of returning to the original sources. Isaac could not could could have dug new wells. He could have dug new wells. Instead, he chose to restore Abraham's wells. He could have chosen new names. Instead, he chose to use the same names that Abraham had given them. In a similar way, the biblical path of faith is not one of innovation and novelty. Instead, we find our spirit satisfied 
drinking from the wells of faith from which our fathers drank. When the master offered the woman at the well all the living water of salvation, he spoke not of literal water, but of salvation. Yet he offered that living water to her at Jacob's well. The journey into Messianic Judaism and the Hebrew works roots of Christianity is much like Isaac's journey back to the wells of his father Abraham. These original sources have been filled in and concealed by time and hostile Philistine, Philistines. The Sabbath has been lost. The holy days have been forgotten. If you don't believe me, come to a Rosh Kadesh sometime. It's forgotten. It is a commandment. If we all make only if we all only make an effort to open these original wells up again, we will find that they are as deep and filled with living water as when our father first drank from them. In later years, a people called the Philistines became a thorn in the side of Israel, ever vexing them, often lording over them. They did the tribes of Israel a great deal of harm. The sages pointed to the oaths of Abraham and Isaac as the reason that Joshua did not drive out the Philistines in his day. In the modern era, the name Philistine has landed on yet another people group. The word Palestine comes from the name Philistine. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Yehudit, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Vashmat, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. But they became a cause of embitterment, grief, of the spirit of Yitzchak and Rebekah. Esau knew the romantic story of how his grandfather Abraham had sent his servant back to Aram to retrieve a wife for his father Isaac. Despite all that, it did not occur to him that the same matrimonial formula should not apply to him. Esau married himself to the doomed people of the land. Tradition says they refused to heed the spiritual instruction of Isaac and Rebekah. They persisted in idolatrous practices of the Hittites. In the course of time, after Esau had grown old and his eyes dim, so that he couldn't see them, he called Esau his older son, and he said to them, My son, and he answered, Here I am. Look, I am old now. I don't know when I will die. Therefore, please take your hunting gear, your quiver of arrows, and your bow, and go out into the country and get me some game. Make it tasty the way I like it, and bring it to me to eat. Then I will bless you as a firstborn before I die. Genesis 27, 1-4. This chapter is one of the most crucial and mystifying in the Torah. Crucial because the decision about which son was to receive the patriarchal blessings would determine which would be God's chosen people, with all the responsibilities that came with it. So that he had eternal destinies of Jacob and Esau and their offspring were in the balance. And mystifying because it is hard to fathom how the righteous Isaac could be so adamant in choosing Esau, and while Rebekah re would resort to such a blatant deception to secure the blessings for Jacob. Some truth lies behind the observations of Isaac's blindness and Esau's wives. The keen-eyed, sharp-eared Rebekah missed nothing. Esau's idolatrous wives sickened 
her righteous soul. She said, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. In Genesis 27-46. Yet somehow Isaac overlooked the fact that Esau had married into the Canaanite peoples whom God had promised to displace. He intended to pass the blessing of inheritance on to Esau when Esau had already compromised that inheritance. Obviously Isaac had more than a spiritual blindness. His eyes did not see the behavior of his favorite son. Fathers often affirm their sons in matters of athletic skill and physical achievement. A son may find his father's approval in the handling of a football, a baseball, a soccer ball, or perhaps in producing high academic scores. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, if we want to raise godly sons, our approval should focus on their spiritual prowess, their devotion to the master, their study of Torah, and their depth of character. Rivka was listening to Yitzchak, spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the country to hunt for game and bring it back, she said to her son Yaakov, Listen, I heard your father telling Esau your brother, Bring me game and make it tasty so I can eat it. Then I will give you my blessing in the presence of Adonai before my death. Now pay attention to me, my son, and do what I tell you. Go to the flock, bring me back two choice kids. I will make it tasty for your father the way he likes it, and you will bring it to your father to eat. So he will give his blessing to you, Isaac, before his death. Rebecca knew that the Lord had chosen Jacob, not Esau, to inherit the blessing. She also knew that Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob, but now intended on claiming it anyway. From Rebecca's perspective, things were about to go terribly wrong. It looked as if, as if her husband was about to thwart God's plan. Rebecca took matters into her own hands. Her decision to get involved can be compared with Sarah's decision to give Hagar to Abraham. Sarah wanted to help God keep his promise to Abraham. Sarah wanted to help God his, his destiny. Rebecca decided to help God out too. She had a noble end in mind, but the end did not justify the deceitful methods she employed to accomplish her goal. Rebecca's deceitful plot bore consequences that haunted Jacob and his sons for generations to come. A person should learn some lessons from the actions of Sarah and Rebecca. We should not let our zeal for, to see God's will accomplished allow us to run ahead of his timing or, God forbid, commit some transgression in order to do his will, which is an obvious contradiction. Rebecca's Strong will overruled Jacob's reluctance. You've had mothers do this to you before, or wives, or maybe husbands. Now therefore, my son, hear my voice as I command you. The idiom of hear my voice functions as an imperative that says, obey me. Rebecca was not making a suggestion. She ordered Jacob to participate. Just as Abraham consented to Sarah's demands, Jacob consented to Rebekah's demands. In order to deceive Isaac, Jacob concealed his identity from Isaac. That sin returned upon him measure for measure in the story of Rachel and Leah and in the Joseph narratives. As we have learned so well, the deeds of the fathers portents for the sons. Isaac did not recognize his own son, the rightful heir. These things portended the coming of Messiah, a son of Isaac 
whose identity was also concealed from the eyes of the nation. He approached and kissed him. Yitzhak smelled his clothes and blessed Yaakov with these words. See, my son smells like a field which Adonai has blessed. So may, may God give you due from heaven the riches of earth and the grain and wine in abundance. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. May you be Lord over your kinsmen. Let your mother's descendants bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So I got to get you and show you the the deathbed there. As Isaac began to bless Jacob, the spirit of prophecy settled upon him, and inspired the words that proceeded from his mouth. This explains why he was not able to reverse the blessing and bestow it upon Esau when he found out the ruse. He had not created a blessing. It came by inspiration of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. The second component of the blessing reaffirmed Re Re Rebekah's prophecy. Though Isaac was previously unaware of the message that the Lord had spoken to Rebekah concerning Jacob and Esau, he now reiterated the same prophecy in a similar language. This part of the blessing also carries messianic significance. It is not merely a blessing about the relationship between Jacob and Esau. It looks to the messianic era when all nations will be subject to Israel under King Messiah Yeshua. Toldot ends you do this. Toldot ends with the with Rebecca hearing of Esau's plan to kill Jacob and watches over and protects her son by sending him away to Badan Aram and her brother Laban. The Torah is not a history book. It's a story of the creation of a family. The family of God. God chose this family to reveal himself to the world. Through his family we, re we receive the word of God, the blessings of God and the, and the Son of God. We are blessed to be messianic and to have the Lord reveal to us the whole story. It is up to us how we use this awesome power. The power of the word, his chesed, his kindness, the love of Elohim, the almighty God. Thank you, Hashem. So that's the, um, the teaching of our Torah portion today. That's what I got out of the Torah portion. And you know, that was really a shallow um, if you, when you start digging into the Torah, it's so much deeper than this. That was really a kind of a, a Peshat understanding of the, of the Torah, and I, I hope you got something out of that. Um, Rosh Kadesh this week, I had the honor of being the, the one to lead Rosh Kadesh, and um, I did want to talk a little bit about um, one of the concepts of um, this month, Kislev. Kislev is, is a month that is um, um, the month of Hanukkah, okay? And I talked a little bit about the, um, the fact that the, this, this is the darkest month of the year. The days are, are, are shorter and the nights are longer than any other time of year. And Hanukkah is a celebration of light. We actually light Hanukkah candles on the longest nights of the year. So the light shines on the longest nights of the year for eight days. Because it always falls 
on the solstice, right? So we believe, when I say we believe, it is thought, let's just put it that way, that Yeshua would have been conceived during this time of year. If he was going to be born during Sukkot, he would have been, he would have been conceived during this time of year. So during the darkest of times, the greatest of light was conceived. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So we're going to enter into the holiday season. And many of us in this congregation have got families that celebrate Christmas. And many of you may celebrate Christmas. And we talk a lot in the Messianic Judaism and Judaism about where Christmas came from. It was a celebration um, that the Romans had actually, uh, uh, um, Saturnilla, Saturnilla is kind of where it came out of. And we look at that with, um, in a neg negative way, you know. But I got to tell you, um, family is extremely important. And most people in our society that celebrate Christmas are doing it in a very genuine way. They love the Lord. And they look at it as a time of Yeshua's birth. And they're worshiping Yeshua. And they do a lot of things right. And we should not forsake our family for the sake of, of you know, a, a, a disdain for Christmas. We should involve ourselves with family. As Messianics, we, we believe in Hanukkah, right? And we, we celebrate Hanukkah during, during that time. But Hanukkah is not Jewish Christmas. It's something completely that was, that was, that was celebrated way before, okay? So I just say that just so that, um, um, you know, family are important. Don't, don't, don't distance your family from yourself because of something. You know, you, you, you hold your beliefs. Nothing wrong with holding your beliefs, and you've got your reasons. But do it in a, in a very passionate and gentle way. So, so let's close with a prayer. Alvinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you again for this glorious Shabbat day for the lessons of your Torah, for the words of your wisdom that come from your, from your people, Father, and for, the, uh, for, for keeping it alive all these centuries, for us to be here today and be able to gain the richness that you give us from it, Father. Father, be with each of us as we go in the into the world as we leave here today, once our service is over, and, and bless our service, Father. Be with us. Show your presence to us in, in our service. Father, when we come in contact with people, I pray that those people would see you in us in all that we do. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.